Hello, you're listening to the abridged version of Book Shambles. If you'd like to hear the full-length version of Book Shambles and also get loads of other extra treats and bits and pieces, then why not go to patreon.com slash bookshambles. Anyway, here's the abridged version with loads of really interesting things that were cut out. I mean, there's lots of interesting things you're still going to hear, but some of the things you're missing out on. Hello and welcome to Book Shambles. Producer Trent here. We are now a year into lockdown, pandemic, uh, etc., which means uh, a year of live stream shows, a year of me having to uh, do seven takes of these intros because they usually get interrupted by a siren or a motorbike or something else that wouldn't be an issue if we were in the studio. This week's episode is a double header. We've got two guests on this, the general public edition of Book Shambles, Ben Machel and Marza Mengeste. If you would like to hear the full uncut interviews with both of them, then you can become a Patreon supporter, patreon.com slash bookshambles. Yeah, extended episodes each and every week. Or in fact, this week, you get two episodes with Ben and Marza. And of course, you not only get the warm, fuzzy feeling of supporting the Cosmic Shambles Network, but you get tips for existence and uncanny hour and live streams and behind-the-scenes stuff and lots of extra goodies for being a Patreon supporter. Or you can just go to Apple Podcasts, rate and review the show five stars. That helps us out as well. But let's get to our first guest of this episode. Here is Robin and Josie and Ben. Hello, welcome to Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. Hello, Ben. How are you doing? Yeah, yeah, really well, thank you. Now, this is. Let's get straight into that. This is the, the unusual suspect, which is such an interesting book because it is. It's basically about a, a geography student from from Sidmouth, who became uh, a, a, a bank robber and uh, and robbed um, betting shops for ideological and progressive reasons. And I hope that's a reasonable summary of a book, which, of course, is far more complex than that. But can you tell us a little bit about how you first came across the, the, the story of, of Stephen? Yes, uh, as you say, it's, it's a true story of, of a, a young, socially isolated guy from you know, a, a council house in Devon um, who arrives at this point where he's looking at the world and essentially he kind of sees it with this outsider's perspective. He realises that there are these big existential problems, environmental, social, financial, and it just starts to wind him up kind of very sort of slowly and gradually until he arrives at this point where he concludes kind of that he's kind of got this obligation, this duty to rob from the rich and, and, and give to the poor. And, and that's what he, he begins to do. Um, yeah, as you say, he, he carries out a load of bank robberies, um, sort of a, a very success. Um, and I, I first found out about him just doing my day job. You know, I, I write for the Times magazine, I'm a feature writer. And it was just one of those mornings where you don't really have anything to do. So you sort of want to look busy and you're just browsing through the internet, scrolling through stories. And then at some point, I think I just saw like a local news headline about, you know, Robin Hood. Bankwabber writes, you know, apology from jail, and, and you think, okay, hang on, Bob Hood, sort of click on it and you read it, and then this sort of bit by bit, you begin to kind of find out about this this, this guy who, who carried out this plan um, or tried to anyway. And the more I found out about, it, the more I was like, well, I kind of have to find him really. There's not a, an excuse not to it's sort of my job. Um, and but by this point, which I guess was 2016, he'd been released from jail because he was captured. That's um, that's not a spoiler. Uh, and I managed to get in contact with him, and he sort of agreed really to let me come and spend quite a bit of time with him, just talking about what he did and why he did it and everything that happened really. Uh, and I, I went away and I, I wrote a piece for the for the Times about him and what he'd done, but. Honestly, within kind of 20 minutes of sitting down with him, in the back of my head, I was like, oh, I kind of just have to write this book now, I suppose. I don't really have an excuse not to. It's the, the as you say, the kind of, um, the, the, all the various things going on that kind of led into that point. I just kind of felt that this sort of, I don't say it needs to be told, because obviously it doesn't need to be told, but I was just very interested in it. 
um, you know, not just the action of, of, of what he did, which I'm sure we'll get into, but just the point of how, how do you get to that point where you're like a, uh, you know, you never did anything wrong in your life. And then you're kind of thinking, well, I'm, I'm, I have to rob this bank. You know, that, that, that to me, as a starting point, was, was, was really kind of what drew me to it. Like, how do you get into that position where, where you're doing this? Well, there's loads of moments in the book where you think, well, that could be seen one, that could be seen one. I mean, you know, the idea of doing a robbery and then running slightly late to your geography lecture and sitting in the back with a rucksack filled with, with money that you've just stolen is is a very vivid image. And, and that's that's what I'm interested in as well, which is it, it, you could easily see this as this is perhaps just a, you know, a, a good long piece for a, for a, a, a newspaper. But this opens up his story at what point did you start to see that this there's so many different things that are going on in this story of him and s- yeah so i mean when you kind of look at the bear, when i kind of first found out about the i suppose the bare facts of the story you know it is a young guy who has got asperger's syndrome although he doesn't know it nobody really knows it it's not been diagnosed and he resolves <laughs> to rob banks and he starts to do it, and he does it with a degree of success in the sense that he doesn't get caught. You know, he puts all this planning into this endeavour um, uh, in a kind of rational way. Like, he does he does his research. Like, he looks at what other bank robbers have done, and he kind of copies their methods, and he plans escape routes, and he puts changes of clothes in local parks and in the uh, locker rooms in local swimming baths. And sort of time and again he gets away he doesn't hit the jackpot in the way that he hopes but he's he's walking to banks and coming out with money and not being captured and you just look at that and you're like well that's kind of exciting do you know what I mean it's kind of like I kind of want to know how you did it how, how, how did you do it um but then you spend time I spent time with him and then digging really into what his life was like and the question became so why did you like, why did you do it like why why did you get to that point because the the, the action and the heist stuff you know it, it's kind of thrilling you know i've obviously you know i have to stress that you know a lot of people were traumatized and terrified by what he did i don't want to make light of that but just the, the the action side of it is um really compelling but but as you say the story really became just all this kind of drip 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 factors i suppose internally and externally that that kind of led him there you know t- to the point where he's got the balaclava and the replica pistol and he knows where all the cctv in exeter center is and he's got the change of clothes and do, do you know what I mean like, like how do you arrive there it became became the story and i think it's sort of it relates to his wider concerns as well because had he been better supported as a young person he wouldn't have got to a position where he was sort of so far down that road. But because he wasn't better supported as a person, that's proof for him that society is failing and lacking and that, you know. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a really kind of, you know, it became a, a lot more profound and um, I say profound, I mean, in my opinion, um, uh, than what I first imagined it was, which was, you know, a, a caper. Um, and it kind of still is, um, but you know, it, it, so much of, of why he finds himself kind of existing in his own head, which is really the, the, the problem. Um, you know, it comes down to societal stuff. You know, both his parents um, had psychiatric problems. You know, his mother was severely schizophrenic. Um, you know, his parents met on a psychiatric ward in Devon, um, and he grows up in an environment which just isn't like an environment that most people experience you know he he had you know his his mother having conversations with people who weren't there and and that kind of starts to change your perception of reality and possibility um you know but you know but but by all accounts his father was um you know probably most likely bipolar um you know he, he was sort of domineering and, and, and difficult and, and and this is the environment that that Stephen Jackley grew up in um you know that they weren't part of any of the places where they moved around you know they, they, they moved around Devon but they eventually settled in Sidworth but they were never kind of plugged in I suppose to society um and then by the time he gets to really secondary school he's just veering off you know from everybody else 
you know, he, he has he has a friend who, who I interview in the book. Um, and interestingly, the, the only kind of sort of continual companion he had um, was this guy who lived down the road from him. And it, just by chance, well, probably not by chance, his, his, his dad worked with people with, with autism. So he, he kind of intuitively understood, you know, that, that people can be different. And, you know, that, that just because somebody's a... Uh, can be a little bit um, pedantic or a little bit obsessive doesn't mean you kind of can't hang out with them. But um, he was the exception rather than the rule. And so, yeah, but by, by the time Stephen gets to secondary school, he's on his own, you know, and he's... One of the things that I didn't expect at the start was he kept these diaries. He was a meticulous diary keeper from, you know, the age of 12, 13 onwards. And... Um, one day he just gave me like just a massive stack of these things. Um, and you, you know, I'd spend a lot of time at night after my kids had gone to bed, just going through them. And these are kind of, these were the conversations he was having essentially with himself about the world and about increasingly things that was really into like space time, you know, uh, a string theory, you know, proper kind of Stephen Hawking stuff, but then also geology and really kind of just having this poetry, and just getting this insight into this kid, really, who's just, as to say, completely on his own and having to kind of um, just exist, really, in, 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 in his own head. Um, that, that, that was, I suppose, really getting into those diaries and just seeing his, you know, the handwriting. You know, you're like an like a 11-year-old's handwriting is, it's not brilliant. I mean, mine's not great, but you're just getting a kind of a sense of just this person who's, on their own and trying to kind of make sense of everything, um, but not really having much of a chance because look at his environment. See, that's it, a, sorry. Oh no, I was going to say it feels really unusual to have that kind of a close relationship with somebody you're writing about who's still around, who's literally trusting you enough to share those things with you. That must have felt like a heavy weight of responsibility when you were writing it. Yeah, I mean, in in a way a sense of responsibility to kind of everyone um you know because you know people often say oh, you know, did you feel sorry for, do you feel sorry for Stephen or do you sympathize with what he did and obviously I don't kind of sort of think it was a, a, you're not a allowed good idea. to say you did no. you're not allowed to say you did so. no, no but, but but I you know I I generally don't I think if I did I probably wouldn't have written the book to, to, yeah, to be honest like um because I wouldn't have been so interested um uh but it is hard to have you know those kind of insights into someone's childhood um you know uh, along with kind of stuff much later when it's in prison in the UK so, you know uh, information about his experience there and, and not kind of feel like on, on a basic level some some sympathy um, and in terms of the responsibility I don't know uh, I mean maybe I'm callous but you know ultimately you know, he shared with me what he wanted to share you know he didn't share yeah, everything um, and you know <laughs> it, it could just be the kind of the um, the inner hack speaking but it was all kind of material really you know and and material to, to help I suppose really frame who he was and where it was coming from um but you know I I, I didn't kind of I, I didn't spend loads of time being like is this fair to him on a kind of moral level I just wanted to be like well is this giving a, a, a true impression of where he was coming from or what he felt at the time um I don't know if that answers the question yeah um, it does I, but I, I was going to ask, like, how does that relationship sort of go on now the book is finished and the book is published? Like, is it something that you're still in touch with him and you feel that you ought to be? Or is it something that you, once that's finished, it's finished? I mean, the, I think before I answer that, like, people kind of want to know, like, why, you know, and, and I suppose I wanted to know, like, why are you still speaking to me? You know, like, ask, ask through the process because, you know, it, it was difficult for him because he was, I mean, basically ashamed of what he did and embarrassed by what he did. And without putting too fine a point on it, he, he kind of sort of ruined his life. You know, he ended up, you know, as readers will discover, um, spending, you know, almost a year in, in, in the, the US penal system, including time in solitary confinement and, you know, really just awful circumstances. And then 
another six and a half years in the UK. So he, he, he lost his, his 20s, essentially. Um, and he had to come to terms with what he had done and, and the harm that he'd done to people. Um, and I think part of the reason that he was kind of just willing to kind of go there, I suppose, um, you know, over the course of many months of me and many conversations, I think he sort of wanted to get to the bottom of it kind of as much as I did. You know, I think he kind of, he had not really processed the, the, the full sweep of, of, of what happened to him. Um, and I think it probably, you know, he was as interested as I was kind of coming, but, but coming at Nicky from, from, from the opposite perspective, but it, we, we were both kind of just trying to get our heads around what he had done. And, and, and like I said at the beginning, how we had got to that point. Um, and in terms of now, you know, it's, it's, I guess it's, an, it's an acquaintance, you know, kind of email and stuff, but we don't kind of, um, you know. You're not best friends now because of the- No, project. no, and, 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 and I, you know, we, 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 we sort of never were, but um, we're, we're, you know, um, he's just someone whose name pops up in my email and um, I, I did the same to him. I'm interested, you mentioned like the inner hack there, and obviously you're predominantly a features journalist, now and you know and, and so i know that's different but is that something that plays on your mind at all and i'm thinking of some of the current conversations about you know uk journalism in particular which is that balance between having to have a story and at times wondering if you're too desensitized to actually the implications i'm not talking about this book talking mm -hmm. generally to implications of what that story will do to people what that story will do to those who are, because I think everyone is probably anyone who's even slightly had a moment in long night will have had a moment where they may well have spoken to a journalist and then read what they they've said and gone well hang on a minute that's this has been reached and and it's a very I'm, I'm always fascinated by that balance between I have to write a story where do you place the empathy for the person who is going to be for possibly only a day but forever on the internet the centre stage of that story. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I, I would say I probably kind of think about it loads because you know I've written, you know, I've, I've written stuff about myself <laughs> and my life. <laughs> I've kind of got an internet, and I think I probably shouldn't have said that, or you know, so I, I kind of know kind of what it, it feels like. You know, I think a lot of writers these days as things getting you know in, in ever more first person I've, I've been through that themselves so in in, in a bizarre way maybe maybe people are kind of uh, more attuned to it because it's very rare well but perhaps it's less it's not so common that you get people just interviewing other people and you know often you have to share something about yourself as well um you know i've interviewed people who have been through terrible stuff you know, of Iraqi children who have lost families in airstrikes and been disfigured. And, you know, uh, only this weekend, uh, a, a young boxer from Sheffield who was sexually abused as a child, you know, like really kind of stuff which, to be totally honest, I didn't sign up to this to sort of to do. I thought it was going to be popular views and stuff, but things happen. Um, so it's something which I do spend a lot of time thinking about because ultimately like it does come back to me and I don't want anyone to kind of be like well I didn't that's not what I meant and you probably knew that wasn't what I meant or do you know what I mean like I, I, I it's something which I spend a lot of time thinking about um because at the end of the day like I, I just don't want to be that arsehole um you know and when, when I say it in a hack it's in the context of me <laughs> of you know me not being a very good hack at all um i was probably just trying to talk big to be honest oh no no i didn't know i didn't I, it, it interests me though because i think news journalism is and, and and i think for anyone who's writing someone's story in any different way not just news journalism there is a bit where you sometimes have to work out the collateral damage and some people i think don't work it out at all and don't care and i think we see a lot of that unfortunately in the, in the again in kind of some of the stuff that's been talked about now and I think other people are very thoughtful about it and are and also it's that I, I think a lot of it does come down to the amount of real human interest that you have I mean I think this book shows very clearly your interest in Stephen I think it expresses a, a you know a proper fascination which goes beyond the there's a book in this certainly came across to me there's more than just saying there's a book in this there is a story that is told that has at points I think some quite important things to say about various issues um 
And I'm, yeah, yeah I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I mean, it's the same in comedy. Sometimes you come up with a joke and you think that's a brilliant joke. And then you go, oh, hang on a minute. Yeah, who's the oh, How one? many people are going to, and, you know, and you, you're doing almost mathematical sums in your head to work out, hang on, how many people might interpret it like this? So, so I think it's anything with public statements. I've written a joke where I've written jokes where I know that the laugh is a is a righteous laugh, but then after a while you're like somehow there's also a bad laugh in this, and I still have to cut it. Yeah, if you could just work out and you go right, can I just stop the show for a moment? I've worked out where you are. You seat three C, wrong laugh, totally misunderstood. Yeah. That laugh you, is not righteous, 4D, and I know need, it. Yeah, <laughs> I think one of the things which I, I try to do and and, 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 and and I certainly try to do in the book, but just also generally is, is just get the information and get what people, you know, that the subjects say and, but just try and present enough to just let people sort of make their own minds up really. Like, mm-hmm. you know, so much of what I had to get my head around writing this was about perspective, you know, and kind of, <clears throat> you know, people often kind of want to know, oh, well, was he telling the truth? you know, was his, was what Stephen was saying about his motivations, like real or, you know, was it goody Stephen or was it baddie Stephen? And what kind of, and it's, it's a fair question, but, but but what becomes apparent is that I don't think even he necessarily knows half the time. Do you know what I mean? It's so all these things, different things at play, you know, when it comes to delusion and obsession and cognitive dissonance, the ability to kind of kid yourself and, you know, feel two separate things and want different things. Um, and maybe it's just a bit of a cheat, but sometimes just if you just give people, you know, as much information about just the landscape of what was going on and what he's doing, what's going on in his mind, then sometimes you just have to sort of say, well, look, draw your own conclusions, you know, and I think in, sometimes in journalism, that's a way of being fair to someone, you know, just being like, well, look, they say this and they seem like this. And, you know, someone else I spoke to said this about them, um, you know, oh, here you go, here you go. Um, you know, and and sometimes you you look under the comments of what you've written. You know, uh, what, what readers say, and they disagree and they come to different conclusions and stuff. And that's totally fine because it means that you've not been hammering an angle. You know what I mean, you've not been telling people like, oh well, this person's obviously a bastard, or this person's obviously kind of, you know, is trying to string us. You know, it, 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 that kind of stuff's fine. Um, and you know, it also avoids having to come down on, on, on one side of the fence, which is... It almost sounds yeah. like it's that, that bit of the, the, the film soundtrack which tells you exactly how you're meant to feel. Mm-hmm. And it's yeah. that bit, if you don't feel as, you know, about this... What, what would have been, if thinking of all the features that you've written, is the one we think, oh, looking back, I wish I'd done that book. I wish I'd taken that somewhere else. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, that is a good one. I mean, I once... I once, when the financial crash first hit in sort of 2007, 2008, I spent all this time on a piece with salespeople, car salesmen, um, Avon sales saleswomen, people whose job it was just to sell to people, water cooler salesmen. And it wasn't kind of like dramatic or anything like that, but you're kind of, kind of on the spending time with these people in the world who just got to get people to spend money and it was just fascinating spending a day on the forecourt of a used car place in nottingham with this 6 year old used car salesman just talking about everyone who walks past and dissecting them and predicting what they're going to want and looking at the body language was just it was bliss like honestly like in my job it was just the just the nicest just drinking tea and talking about people as they walk past and then watching them into you know speak to them and stuff and then just turn them maybe and I told you, told you. Um that was just so interesting. And it's to me, not to read <laughs> I'm not pitching this because no one would read it, but um stuff like that, I think maybe I should just dial it down a bit and look for something maybe maybe my next thing might be quite genteel. Hmm. See, that's what I found a book that I just read that I would not have read, but I had to read it for for something. And those stories which aren't about big things, which is I just read Captain Tom's book. And it's just a really interesting, you know, here is someone who got to 100 years old 
never being someone who was going to write their autobiography mm. and then suddenly became someone where publishers went, we want your story. And so it's this story which is about growing up around Keithley and about, you know, obviously like many people of his generation, there is the part of being in the Second World War, but so much of it is... This is a normal life. Mm-hmm. These are the things that happen. And these are the things, and it just reminded me all the time. But some of my favourite books are books which people didn't even realise they had a story to tell. And I think that's that's one of the interesting things, which is everyone has sometimes stories that can appear on the outside to be banal. I'm trying to think. Tony Parker, who was a great, I don't know if you ever read, great documentary uh, book writer. So he wrote, I've mentioned it on here before, but for instance, he wrote a book about lighthouse keepers and their mm, partners mm, and stuff mm, like that. Mm. And he and he removes himself from the book, so it then just becomes a monologue from each one of these people. And I remember when I was given that in like 1991, a mate went, you've got to read this. And I was like, book about light. And of course, it's brilliant. And his, and his least interesting books, to me, are the books about people who've done really terrible things. Yeah. And the interesting ones are the ones that about, oh, this is just some people who live in a street, but it turns out. Yeah, you, yeah, you've got to get traction on people. Do you know what I mean? That's that's why the kind of the Hannibal Lecter stuff, where it's kind of like, well, yeah, of course you'd do that because you're, you're you're mad. Well, that's like, <laughs> you know, the, the, the one of the things that I, on reflection, talking about now, I like enjoyed really so much about the process of, of, of like the usual suspect was how much of, Steve's life was normal, you know, as much as we're talking about the kind of, you know, the heists that he carries out and the kind of tragicomic stuff that that really sort of goes on and, you know, he travels the world, really, in, in pursuit of this, this quest. Just the diary entries where he's writing about the place of a steak bake in, you know, Worcester and a bike ride that he went on while all this other stuff is happening and just um, films that he watched, like, before he goes to rob a bank and it's the kind of you know that juxtaposition i suppose and and, and the fact that apart from the stuff that he did apart from the stuff that wasn't normal most of this stuff was pretty normal you know like he did go to university he wanted to kind of you know find a girlfriend and all all, all that kind of normal stuff you know it it, 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 it kind of made it um yeah i suppose it just made it all more compelling for me yeah and i think when i think about uh like what I love when I'm trying to write things that have like high genre in them or something like that is the fact that no matter what is going on, you always have real life mundane things going mm. on alongside it. And, and that to me is like, this is what people are, you know, people, you know, in the pandemic, you know, we're simultaneously thinking about terrifying, awful things. And we're also talking about a cheese sandwich we made yesterday. Mm-hmm. And, and that's always... Well, those two things are always going to be running along simultaneously with one another, and and I think that's when when I don't like genre fiction is when it doesn't have any of that, like like as you say, the idea that sort of not that this is fiction, but like when I don't like stories, it, it's when they only have like an action hero beating people up and not yeah. an action hero waiting at the post office. Best, bit, best bits in Lord of the Rings is when they have something to eat. Like, what are they having to eat? Oh, it's just oh, no, it's stew. That's good. Yeah, I, I like stew. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of like I, 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 I feel exactly the same way. Um, thank you so much for talking to us. I we should have asked you loads of other stuff. <laughs> it's such an interesting. I think we've thing. asked him about his book. That's all. Yeah. I can't ask him everything. Tell us what happens in chapter one. Brilliant. What happens in chapter <laughs> two? It won't help with sales. <laughs> I feel like, did you feel like in writing it, you had some of your assumptions about society changed? Or did you come into it sort of feeling quite forewarned? I, I felt pretty forewarned. I think I'm, you know, I, there was not a massive amount that kind of like made my hair stand on end. Mm-hmm. But by the time I actually sat down to write it, I'd spent so much time speaking to all these people, you know, Stephen, but, you know, lots of other people in the story and going through all the written material. And it, actually the biggest thing was just learning about the financial crash, which is something which you know, we haven't really talked about, but just understanding, you know, the kind of the, um, just the, the voodoo <laughs> that, that, that that was going on was, that, that actually didn't make my hair stand on Because I was like, but hang on, I mean, I'm bad at maths, but this just does not add up. Um, so uh, getting a, a, a chink of understanding on that subject definitely was something which I was boring people with afterwards. <laughs> you were educating people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah, thanks so much for your time. Uh, and yeah, the book the book is out now, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the book's out now, so everyone get it from <laughs> the your local independent bookshop online. There you go. Yeah, and look up yeah because Hive and uh, and also I think it's just called the bookshop as far as I remember, yeah, which yeah. is uh, two places that you, that you can uh, go and that will help your independent bookshop. Thanks very much, Ben. Thanks, Thanks so much for having me. Cheers. And Ben Machel's book is out now. The next person I spoke to, and uh, this was just me on my own because Josie unfortunately had to, well, I was going to say had to go somewhere. She must have had something else on because no one's going anywhere, as we know. But uh, Mars Mangiste has written a fantastic novel, The Shadow King, which covers so many different areas of history and philosophy and our understanding of the nature of ourselves. And uh, that is one of the many reasons it was nominated for the Booker Prize. And here she is. The first thing I wanted to ask you, because it's something we talk about quite a lot on this podcast, which is about the permission to write. Because I know that you've said in the past that, you know, the 20-year-old you could not have imagined that you would almost have been allowed to be a writer, to have been Mm -hmm. a novelist. Yes. Uh, I didn't understand the world of writing. I wasn't sure of how books came into being. And I I think that lack of knowledge uh, really, really limited my sense of what, what I could do. All I understood was that I liked to read. I really liked to read and I could analyze what I wrote. I could discuss books, characters, ideas in a way that when I was in college, my often my teachers would remark on that. So I knew in that way I was responding to literature um, in, in, a, in, a, in a personal way. But, you know, my, my path to writing really began um, writing for commercials. And I worked in the advertising industry. I was writing about cereal. <laughs> I was writing about cars. I was writing about makeup. And that was the first time, really, that I saw how an idea could be put into words and then sent out to an audience and accepted uh, in some way. And uh, slowly from those commercials, I started moving into the film world and began writing scripts. And I made um, uh, one or two very, very, very short films. And I was seeing the creative process and I was beginning to learn it. And that was when I began to think about, um, could I turn some of the memories that I have into, I thought maybe a book because the, the film world is so collaborative and it needs money you have to have a, a big, a large group of people. And I didn't, I didn't want to wait. This book was something, the story was something I wanted to do. Um, and I, I decided to apply for graduate school. And I mean, basically that's when I met my first novelists were in my, in my program and still uncertain whether I was capable of doing something like that, if I could turn these ideas into a book, but it was all step by step. Um, it took many years. Uh, this, what I've described to you in, in a matter of minutes, took you know a, a long, long time to get to. And uh, it took a while before I felt I had earned the right to call myself a writer because I held that vocation and that calling in such high esteem. It's interesting, the advertising thing, because I think Salman Rushdie and Faye Weldon, both, as far as I remember, started, and, and I, you've, you've moved a long way from it. At no point reading The Shadow Kingdom, I think that chapter could have been a jingle. That <laughs> and never had that sense to it at all. Um, but that, that's an interesting, I'm going to leap somewhere where I wasn't going to leap so soon, but because you, the storytelling side, which is one of the things that fascinates me, because, you know, in your first novel, is a lot closer to your personal experience. I know you've talked about that that moment of you as a four-year-old um, being in a house where you're mm-hmm. stormed in during that time. And I'm always fascinated in how far away we sometimes need to be from a personal story to actually see it in, in focus. So I wonder if part of that process, you know, that you then would have been, what, mid-30s when you were mm-hmm. writing that novel, that... Mm-hmm. How, 
Could you not have written that story as well because you would not have actually been able to see what made it a story before then? I think that's absolutely right. That is absolutely right. You know, when I was often frustrated um, when I was in my writing program, um, not frustrated, but as dejected initially because everyone was so much younger than me. And, you know, I was moving into an industry that um, that praises youth as if that's a virtue and a talent in itself. And, you know, all these awards that we give for writers, you know, 30 under 30, 40 under 40, you know, all these numbers. Well, I was I was way too old for a lot of those. And I remember wondering if I had just started too late. And I, I was really so disheartened by all the talk amongst my classmates, my peers of, you know, how young they were or, you know, so-and-so being published at this age and isn't this, this is fantastic that I went to speak to uh, one of my professors, um, an absolutely wonderful writer by the name of Irini Spanadal. And I, I told her, Irini, I, I don't think I'm supposed to be here. I think that it's too late for me. And I think, I don't know if I'm a writer because I, I didn't come from the world that so many of my peers did. And she basically took out a list and she said, I keep this for myself sometimes or maybe for other students. She had a list of all these writers, very, you know, famous writers who had published after the age of 40. And she said, and she just read these off to me and she said, this is not the thing to worry about of all the things. And she said, um, you know, when do you, when do you want to be done with your book? And I had just started my program. And I said, oh, in two years. And she laughed at me. <laughs> and she said, double that number. Double that number and be prepared for the work, but go do it. And she was right. It took me about four years, five years, and then the book was published. Um, but I'll never forget that conversation. Uh, I could not have written the book that I did, that first book, in my 20s. It's impossible, like you were saying. I Not only did I need the distance from it, but I need the thing that accumulates with time, which is insight and understanding and a reckoning with, with the residues of that history. And that is only something I could have done in that moment when I went to my grad school program. It's interesting because looking at it from the perspective, I've spent a lot of my life being a stand-up comic. And I remember a friend of mine, Joe Brand, saying, she said, you can't really be a stand-up till you're 30 because you don't know who you are. And I think of people like Richard Pryor and George Carlin and the point where, you know, there's loads of footage of them before they, and they were good comics, but there's a sudden point where you go, now they have the voice that is them. Now when they're stood on stage, they are really expressing themselves they're not a series of jokes they're not a series of correct reactions to an audience they are something fully formed and i think that is that's such an interesting thing you said again about the um the worship of youth mm -hmm. and you see it again i mean it i hope it's changing it, it should be changing because um a writer's voice doesn't necessarily wear out with age and it's not um you know people develop it at different moments in life. There are certain books that need time in order to be done well. And I think that we have to acknowledge those, those writers who are publishing later in life because uh, the experience that they bring behind the ideas that they're developing, um, I think that there is as much value in that as, um, as the value that the industry tends to place on youth. See, it's interesting thinking of Bernadine Evaristo and, mm -hmm. you know, and the fact that, you know, she's been doing wonderful work for a very long time. And yes. now she said, and what I love about her, if we were talking to her a few few weeks ago, uh, is also the fact she says, now I have power and I'm going to use it. And, you know, <laughs> and, and so, at, you know, is Bernadine 60 yet? She, she's, you know, she's maybe late 50s, you know, yeah. and she's going, right, now, now I've suddenly got all those, all that pushing around. And that's Absolutely. a really wonderful thing to say. See, because she's got such a, you know, so many stories to tell. Yeah, exactly. Um, and in terms of authors that influence you, I know I've read, I think Edith Wharton mm -hmm. and, and again, someone we always talk about on this as well, James Baldwin. Mm -hmm. Did you find the way you read changed 
as as your aspirations changed, as you started to think about being a storyteller, did you find that the way that you read books, the mm. way that you would, uh, did that change? Absolutely. I think initially I was, I was reading for story. You know, like there are times when, when I do that even now. I have to, I try to take off my my writer hat and put on my reader hat and simply just read for the for the story that's unfolding in front of me but as i um as i started writing i i started beginning i i started paying more attention to the structure of a story how it's being told the way that the writer both provides information at certain moments and chooses to withhold information at other moments. I was looking at pacing. I was looking at ways that writers describe lighting, um, the metaphors that are being used, all the scaffoldings. Um, those are the things that I'm looking at now when I pick up a book and I decide to read it as a as a writer. Um, it's, it's very difficult for me not to do that. And I have found that the moments that I don't do that are those when I'm, I've decided to pick up a book of poetry, uh, when I'm engaging with ideas and language. And uh, I think I'm reading it in a way that maybe a poet would not read it because they're looking at, at structure, pacing, you know, voice, narrative uh, standpoint and all of that. But when I'm picking up poetry, I'm just engulfed in, especially since the pandemic, um, a respite from from the chaos and maybe this deadening weight of this virus <laughs> and lockdown. Um, poetry has been a thing that is that has really helped me. I, I wanted to ask about the Shadow King about when you decided this was a story. Because as far as I, so, you were researching Mussolini's invasion in 1935. Mm -hmm. Were you researching it initially for a story? Because the way that I've read it, it seems that. It was as you started to see the photographs, you started to see a story that needed to be told. Absolutely. I had no idea about the women that were involved in the war. I did not know the extent to which they had been involved. Um, I really thought that I was going into this book basically dressing up the, the historical account as I knew it of a David versus Goliath story. I was going to you know, make this into a book, write that story into fiction. Um, these were stories that I grew up with uh, as a child in Ethiopia and even in the United States, a, a poorly equipped army facing one of the most advanced European forces and Ethiopia won. And that in itself was exciting. That, that felt like, uh, you know, an action movie that you might see. Uh, I thought that's what I would do. But exactly like you said, once I started looking at these photographs, um, a whole new story started to unfold that centered women. And I knew at that point that I had to rearrange my entire thinking about this war, rethink my own conceptions about war, and start this book uh, basically again. Now, I was going to ask about the because what's it seems interesting to me as well is when you we hear stories and it seems like you you've taken on something which in in terms of the responsibility, you, you know this is a story because the first thing I think of when people say women and war, is Antigone, and then you go, well that's a very long time ago and it does seem that this you then taking on writing this story it's not just a story, about Ethiopia it's a story which is is in some ways and i don't know how much you felt this it ignites a thousand other stories in so many other countries and so many and i would imagine there are many people who read this book and then start to look in in their own geographical location at their own history and say hang on a minute what is our story here i think that that i mean the same thing happened for me in the process of researching this and writing this book is that i became very curious about, wait, what else is there that I don't know about? And um, looked at liberation movements across Africa, all the anti-colonial movements, and suddenly I'm looking at photographs of women 
that were always fighting. Um, the Spanish Civil War, you know, was full of women anti-fascists fighters. The resistance movements, of course, we've heard, um, you know, these resistance movements across Europe, um, the French resistance, you know, we know women were involved, but they tend to be written as if they were using their sexuality as, you know, as traps, you know, as spies. But then there were women who were actually fighters. The Italians, the anti-fascists, the um, Partigiani, there were women who were very active in that, were, were in the, literally in the front lines in the fight against fascist soldiers. And I kept seeing it again and again. Um, and as soon as the book was published, the stories that I was getting from readers about their discoveries of members of their family who had participated in different forms of conflict, women, um, was really surprising to me. The book made people ask their families about their family history. And these were not just Ethiopians who were telling me this. This was people from, from all uh, parts of the world. And I'm, I'm surprised that we have not spoken enough about the role of women, as prevalent as it seems at this point. Uh, their presence has been there. Um, in mo almost every instance that we can imagine where conflict or some some kind of tension like that has existed. I'm, I'm, I'm also intrigued by, I mean, it's definitely in the UK, and I, I'm looking from a distance at the moment to the US as well, there seems to be this very defensive faction who see writing more stories, giving us more stories about history as having their history stolen. So certainly we've seen that with things like, you know, some of the, the reaction against the Black Lives Matter movement seems to be people saying, but these are our statues and we've got all the stories already. Um, how do you feel about, because again, writing a book like this, whether intentional or not, it, it starts to come to the forefront of something which becomes, I think, a far, far more important story as a whole as well about understanding all of our histories. Do, do you find yourself coming up against that kind of critical voice? Yeah, I mean, history is contested territory. If you can define a nation's history, you are defining a nation's identity. And, you know, there's a quote by Walter um, Benjamin. Uh, he was, uh, you know, from decades ago, but he said, um, if the fascists win or if the enemy wins, not even our dead will be safe. Meaning that if the fascists, the Nazis at that time were going to win, then the way that we, that we remember our past, the way then we begin to honor the dead those dead that we do honor, those that we name to bring forward to help us identify who we are, those people would not be safe if the enemy wins because they, it ha there has to be a co-optation of the past in order to control the present and then define the future. And this is, I mean, it, we've seen this, we are seeing this in the United States. We've just, you know, I'm talking to you after a failed coup, but I don't think that this is a failed coup. I think this thing is going on still, but it's just that the battlefield has now moved from the most apparent, you know, physical confrontation with power, which we saw on the Capitol, um, to now the more subversive and insidious um, fight for power which is, you know, what happens behind the scenes. These senators in the United States that are now being censored because they voted against um, Trump in the impeachment trial, this thing is still moving forward. Um, the, they, they, and you're right, like in, in an attempt to rewrite American history, to call Black Lives Matter a terrorist organization, to deny the, the foundations of violence that this country has been built on, um, if they can erase that, to do that means to create a, a new or an identity of America that they, they think is purely white. And that just, that doesn't even exist. Um, so we're seeing this battle for history, for whose history counts.
which history matters. And um, it's it's going to it's going to keep going. I mean, we yeah. I, I'm curious to see what unfolds in the next six months, in the next year, in the next two years, because it it's not over. Um, but I am I'm hopeful, partly because there are so many people who are working on the ground, and by that I mean the historians, the Black Lives Matter movement, the protesters. Um, it is a multi-front fight against white supremacy. Um, and that makes a difference that is happening on so many different levels. Yeah, these these culture wars, it's a really, it's been a, a horribly a kind of grotesque thing to watch. The fact that people have realized that truth doesn't matter. You know, in, in old politics, you would have lots of duplicitous people, but they would at least feign yeah. that they were telling. And now yeah. what, what I think quite a few people on the right, we see it in the UK and we see it in the US. But it doesn't matter. You, 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 all of those old things they used to think you had to do to pretend you were telling the truth you don't have to do any of that mm -hmm. and that, that's where because there's so much again all that supposed rewriting of history and in fact it's defending as you said it's a single narrative that's yeah. being defended yes absolutely um i remember when uh 2016 trump when trump got elected and i was speaking with friends of mine who were attorneys they're constitutional lawyers two of them and they kept saying well this is going to end up uh, uh, in a in a fight for the constitution this is going to we're going to be in trouble with the constitution and i i remember at that point thinking it's not the constitution that we have to worry about it's language itself that language is being distorted and deformed and when that happens we have no recourse and I think um, what you're saying is is the result of language having been bent so much that truth just doesn't matter anymore. Yeah. It's it's a. I always think that one of, one of the quickest things is uh, the number of people Orwell is now quoted across the board mm -hmm. by. In fact, the left very rarely quote Orwell <laughs> because Orwell, even though his intentions are, I mean, as writers go, he's I would say one of uh, the least kind of cloudy in terms of his intentions. It's pretty direct what he says, mm -hmm. and what a lot of those people who quote Orwell seem to have not realised that 1984 was not him giving a guidebook of how to run a society. It was meant to be, you know, it's, it's yeah, this kind of. Um, <laughs> I mean, on the history side of it as well, that that's I know uh, for the Shadow King finding that, that you used quite a lot of oral history, that actually yeah. finding the written history wasn't really there. Yeah. And, um, you know, I the the Italians kept written records, but it was mostly, you know, the war, according to them. It was censored, if anything. Um, and a lot of facts were just it just wasn't true there were there were th things that they would omit um on the ethiopian side the written record was not was not as present was not there but what people did have were the oral stories this the the ways that that histories from a village could be remembered and passed down from family to family sometimes passed down through songs through the musicians the troubadours um the town criers that were still there, that, that would remember a battle, remember certain feats, remember certain people, sing about them, speak about them, and then cement a collective memory for that area. Um, I wanted to honor that because um, this is the way that I heard so much of this history was through people who spoke it to me. Um, even now, I mean, I, I went back um, to do some last minute research on the novel uh, in I think 2019, 2018. And um, I got this history from talking to people who were living in the area where I was, you know, villagers that, that could tell me, oh yeah, I'll take you over here and this is where there was an Italian camp and this is what they did and this is this. And that person was too young to have been alive then, but they're repeating to me stories that their grandparents told them, you know, walking them through these areas. So I wanted to honor that. And, um, you know, but also 
I was influenced by um, by Homer and the the chorus in Greek tragedies, which are oral storytellers that speak parts of of scenes or speak responses or sing responses back uh, to people in the in the plays. And this is not something that was exclusive to the Greeks. This is something that was happening across Africa, across Ethiopia, across different countries around the world. Um, this is how history was passed along and the Greeks happen to have that and so do we. And it's it's the Iliad, isn't it? That that yes. that is your. Uh, so w when did you first meet? When did you first read the Iliad? When did that first become part of your life? Because it seems I presume with every new translation you dive in again. I do, <laughs> I do. Um, I I am. I think I was in in high school the first time I read the Iliad, and I remember everyone complaining about it in my class except me. I was just spellbound by it. And um, those battle scenes still to this day get me. You know, the, uh, it, I, it is, I still go back to it. The momentum of that writing is uh, something that I wanted to emulate in, in the book with battle scenes and the Shadow King. But I was really influenced uh, by that. And frankly, when I was in high school, and I saw in Homer a mention of Ethiopia or Ethiop. It was truly the first time that I saw my country in literature. And there I was. And it felt that story was mine. You know, my people were there. So this was my story as much as anything. And uh, I think that was what kept me gravitating towards the Greek tragedies. That's it, because that almost brings us back to where we started. That, you know, about the permission to tell a story that you ever mm -hmm. wrote. The, that, if you're not in a story, if someone like you is nowhere to be seen, and again, as you're talking about the fact that you know the Shadow King is the story of women in war, is the story. You know, how many films are there? If we if we count, you know, Hollywood has been the one place where everyone's actually going to see a story because not everyone reads. How many films are you know the, the 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 story of 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 women in war? And then once you're not represented, I, the, the story then is, does it even become an illegitimate story? Do you think, right. well, hang on, this can't be a true story because it's nowhere to be seen? Mm -hmm. Because you need to see yourself reflected in something to understand the possibility for you, the possibilities, and if. <clears throat> I think if I um, if I hadn't seen that in literature, if I hadn't seen Ethiopia in an ancient text like that, um, I don't know if I would have felt that those stories belong to me because, you know, going to college and and loving this literature, um, you know, people would say, well, what is, what is someone like you reading this? Like, why are you interested in this? Because it wasn't, I'm not supposed to be. Um, that would have been daunting if earlier in my life, in, you know, in high school, I hadn't recognized myself in those stories. Yeah, and that's, that's where representation really matters. It really matters. And I, you know, I, I, can only imagine the the moment, the awakening that happened for children, uh, black children around the world, the first time they saw Black Panther. Mm. You know, the idea of what defines a hero. It, we get that often from literature. We get that from films. And here is something that's helping to define that for children. And it, those people look like them. Uh, that's fantastic. Yeah, it's a, that, in that form of pop culture, it is, yeah, when mm -hmm. Marvel or DC suddenly, <laughs> and, and then, of course, they have the great adventure going, hey, it turns out it's a really big market as well. What have we been then, missing out on? Here of course, we go. That, there's the bottom line. Um, I, I love the story you told about, uh, well, not the story itself, but it's a very, when you talk about the fact that when you were as a very young child in, in Ethiopia and you would be asked questions, and no one would have imagined that a four-year-old would lie. Um, and you say you almost feel that's where your storytelling begins. Yeah, that that day, um, I, 
you know that that memory of of when those soldiers broke into into our house is something that just kept revolving around my head um no one talked about it i know that we were hiding someone i know i am positive i was just speaking to my cousin a couple of weeks ago about about that moment again and saying you know do you remember that room that was in our grandfather's house do you remember this and he's like oh i remember that room um but he was too young you know he doesn't remember and yeah that was the moment the soldier asked me is there someone in the house and i knew that person was hiding in that one room and i know that i had seen that person um and i lied to the soldier uh i yeah that might have been the day i became a writer that was it was that moment of um it was the first lie i think i told that's the first lie i can remember telling um often i was one of i was one of those children that if for example a relative my aunts would tell me you know you did this and this and this and when your mom comes home we're going to tell her what you did i would often meet my mother outside before she came in the house and tell her they're going to tell you i did this and this and this and then my mother said but did you and i'd say yes because i just want to get it over with and then you know i didn't lie i just was not a, a kid i would try to preempt it whatever punishment i would get so that was the first lie um uh, which is interesting if if the first lie that a child tells is a lie that she knows saved lives or it the consequences of that was so large and i think as a child i couldn't have grasped that at the moment i just knew that these soldiers were scary they had rifles um and i think the enormity of that moment and actually the the diabolical cruelty the the manipulativeness of that soldier uh how did he even think of it at that moment to do that still overwhelms me sometimes um i've written a scene somewhat similar to this uh that's in my first book and it's about soldiers coming in but they you know they don't ask the little girl that's in that book about that uh about whether someone is being hidden but um the triplets that i imagined when i was a child 4 years old i uh it's in the book you know somebody imagines the soldiers as triplets also so it's it keeps resonating in different ways but yeah i and i've been told i'm not a good liar now because <laughs> my facial expression <laughs> gives everything away <laughs> you did all your best love lying when you were a child that's that's yeah. one of the problems isn't it when you just yeah like a great child star you know i did such great lying when i was a kid and now Back now then, it's nothing not now it's all gone well also i suppose when your lies as you said are uh, there is so much hanging on them the fact that other lies which are trying to get out of going to a party or something you think you know what i can't do these lies because they're just they were the other lies were yeah there was responsibility yeah. in these lies i just want to get out of going out on tuesday right. um the uh, i just wanted to finish by uh, asking you about other books that you've been reading as well because we always like to get people's recommendations of uh, either books you're particularly excited to uh, look forward to this year or Well, I cannot recommend enough. Uh Lynn Seasay's My Name is Why. I'm looking here at the bookshelf and uh I am getting ready to start uh Maria Stepanova's In Memory of Memory, which is just uh recently published by Fitzcarraldo and will be um published in the US relatively soon. So In Memory of Memory, which I think is is an interesting book that will be in conversation with thin places that we were just talking about uh and I am really eager to read that book so I have those that I would recommend yeah lem is great that's oh, such a great. um I I just I'll, I'll throw one back you just because shortly after I read lem's I don't know if you've come across Kerry Hudson who wrote a memoir called Lowborn oh, uh no. and both of them 
are I mean, I'm sure you found that reading Lem's book that there's mm -hmm. a point where you want to walk into the book. There's a point where you want to stop things and there's a point where you can't understand why things are. And I would say uh, Kerry's book is another really good uh, example of that thing where, again, yeah, Lem's book is, yeah, he's it's, a great it's guy. powerful, um, yes. Thank you so much for joining us. And, oh, uh, and it you. was and again, what a fascinating education the Shadow King is as well for, you know, it's uh, telling, well, more than one story there. There are so many stories within that story. Um, so uh, thank you very much. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening. Patreon.com slash bookshambles is where you can go to subscribe and hear the unedited versions of both of these interviews, as well as getting lots of other goodies back next week with another new episode. Until then, take care, stay safe. Bye for now. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' Book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions.